almost out of chapter one. I know it's been uh, eight weeks or so, but it's a long chapter. Okay. So, anyways, Mark chapter one. Yeah, to this sermon and the next week's sermon, God willing, and we'll be in Mark chapter two. Um, yeah, still got one more. Mark chapter one, though, uh, and we'll be in verses thirty-five to thirty-nine today. Let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll uh, we'll read this and we'll start. Our Father, we come before you now. In the name of Christ, and Lord, we pray specifically for your Holy Spirit. We know that you are a good Father who gives good gifts to your children, especially especially the Holy Spirit. And so we pray for that now. We pray that you would give us illumination, give us eyes to see the glory and the majesty and the beauty and the power of Christ, and, and much confidence in Him that it's Christ who reigns today and it's Christ who is uh, setting up His kingdom all across the world and specifically in Clovis, New Mexico. So Lord, help us in this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, chapter 1, 35-39 here. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Simon and his companions searched for Him. They found Him and said to Him, Everyone is looking for you. He said to them, Let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby, so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. And he went into their synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out the demons. Okay, so I really did think about tacking on 40 through 45, uh, but I really, as usual, I felt like we could really do justice to this portion if we do that. And so 35 through 39 is very rich for a variety of reasons. Okay, if you remember what happened last week and the, the week before that, it, this, the, what we saw was a 24-hour period of the life of Christ. So he goes, he calls his disciples, they're fishing, he calls them, he says, follow me, they leave their nets, they go and they follow him. And then the next scene, he goes into the synagogue, he casts out a demon, everybody's amazed. And then he goes to uh, Peter's mom-in-law's house and heals her of a fever. The disciples are amazed, but then that night, everybody comes to Peter's, uh, Peter's door because they want to be healed and they have demons that need to be cast out. And so Christ does that. And so this is the next morning. Okay, and so the very first thing to consider is this. So in verse 35, in the early morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up. The reason this is in here is to show us, you know, well, there's a few things. Um, Just on a personal level that we can all understand. You know, if you have a busy day over here and there's a lot of excitement, there's a lot of drama, emotionally it's very charged and everything is, is, is a draining kind of day. We've all had them. Whether it's at work, at home, it can be good things, you know. Um, I have a buddy I give a hard time to because he's, he's a few years older than me, but he used, to, he used to say that he felt hungover on Mondays after he preached twice on Sundays. And I was like, I don't know about that because, you know, I'm used to preaching in the open air, in the, in the heat, you know, getting shouted at for like four hours at a time every single day. But, uh, but anyways, I, I do kind of, in a way, relate to this. And I think, again, we all can, right? So you have a day here, we're drained, we're tired, we're exhausted. The tendency the next day is to kind of go easy, right? To take it easy, to take a break. And especially in light of this, look, what happens here, think about the... Uh, so, so two things happened the day before for Christ, right? It was a successful day. From the eyes of the, from the standpoint of the world, it's a successful day. He goes to the synagogue. He heals a man. He goes to Peter's house. Heals his mom-in-law. He goes uh, right outside of the door, and everybody's coming, and he heals everybody. He's casting out demons. Everybody's excited. Everybody's talking about uh, this, this great man, Jesus of Nazareth. And so from a human perspective, you're thinking, hey, this is an exciting day. A lot of good things have happened. And the tendency... 
when you're on the top of something, the tendency is to kind of, we kind of tend to get relaxed and kind of just, kind of just drift. And what happens is, is we become vulnerable to all kinds of things, you know, laziness, but also we become vulnerable to pride. We become vulnerable, especially just in our spiritual duties. We kind of get sluggish. We don't, we don't feel the necessity to be in the Word. We don't feel the necessity to pray. You know, I'm thinking especially, okay, so, and this has been really great just for, for our circumstances here, just thinking about the church plant here, right? So, so the last three weeks we've had like 30 people. Now we have, I mean, right, it's a packed house. And look, the tendency, this is a great thing, the tendency for me, and I'm not saying we do this, but I'm saying the, the, the danger is to now we kind of get comfortable and relax and we get we get satisfied. And we say, hey, we got, you know, we have 50 people here. I mean, we don't we don't need to grow anymore. We don't need to do this anymore, right? We're doing everything right. We're doing everything we need to, so let's just coast. And the problem with this is this, and, and you know, there's a few things here. What Christ, the, the situation with Christ is similar to our situation, right? We can't be satisfied. I mean, here's the thing. What's the point of a church plan? It's not to get a bunch of people in the door, right? It's not a, it's, that's not the case. The, that's a good thing. But here's, here's the reality. What is drawing people into the church? You see? And so this is something that Christ himself is going to be very acutely aware of. Because what the disciples don't realize is that these disciples coming and flocking to Christ are not, not, they're not coming for the right reason. They're not coming for the sake of Christ. They're coming because they want to be healed. They want an easier life. They want a more comfortable life. And so in one sense, we saw this last week when we were talking about miracles. Miracles in themselves are a good thing when Christ does them. We also see, though, in Christ, uh, we, we see Christ saying that in Matthew 6, He says, there will be many who come to me on that day, and they'll say, Lord, Lord, I, I did miracles in your name. I casted out demons in your name. I did many mighty works in your name. And Christ will say, depart from me, I never knew you. And so miracles don't always mean that you're some kind of spiritual guru. Doesn't always mean that you're some kind of transcendent, you know, esoteric Christian monk or something that's got it all going on. You, we, that's not always the case. Now, with Christ it is. But the point is, is that can't be enough. That in itself does not convert anybody. And so how it relates to us, I would say, is this, right? We can't, we really, just in the same way we'll see Christ. Christ is not satisfied yet. Christ's mission is just beginning. And that's how we have to see this, right? We can't be satisfied until we have 40,000 people here. And if not here in other places getting shepherded and hearing the Word of God throughout Clovis, right? There's 40,000 people in Clovis. And we have 50 people here, which is awesome. That's great, right? And it is exciting. But we can't stop, right? And we know it's God who has to do this. Because there's really only two ways as far as as far as drawing people, whether it's Christ or whether it's this church plant. Now we know this church plant is Christ. That's the beauty of it. But there's only two ways. Number one, um, you know, we can be a, a, a happy, clappy kind of church and we can have like a, you know, eight-piece eight band and maybe a ballet and some skits and all these things and, and really appeal to people's flesh. And then we can draw people in that way. Or it can be done by the Word of God and the Holy Spirit working on people, Right? And it's the second way that Christ is concerned about. It's the second way. Because what we're going to find out is that there is uh, a tendency to examine things by the eyes. That is not always correct. And that's what Christ knows. And so we're going to see some of that. But anyways, Christ at the height 
of his success at the height of an emotionally charged day. The very next morning, he's up, he's going, he's, I mean, he doesn't stay in bed, he doesn't sleep in. He knows this is just the beginning. This is just the beginning. Now the disciples, we'll see their reaction in a minute. But here's Christ, when evening came after the sun, or excuse me, in the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and, uh, and by the way, the part that I just read, if you think about it, so he's the night before he's healing. It's not like during the day, right? So he's up all night, or not all night, but you know who knows how much sleep he got. Not very much sleep. He goes, he wakes up while it was still dark, and where does he go? He went. He goes away to a secluded place. And we've already seen this uh, when Christ goes into the wilderness, when John the Baptist is out in the wilderness. So a secluded place here is it's it's it it resonates with the idea of the wilderness of the desert. And that's usually, at least in the Gospel of Mark, we've already seen, that's where a lot of supernatural spiritual activity is taking place. Okay, so Christ is very, it's, it's very, um, there's nothing unusual here. If you think about the Old Testament, even the saints of the Old Testament, whenever they encounter God, they're usually in a secluded spot, kind of in the middle of nowhere. If you think about Jacob, for instance, whenever he wrestles with God. If you go and look at that story, what happens is Jacob sends everybody across the river, his family, everybody, and then he goes back. And whenever he goes back, then God shows up and he wrestles with Jacob. Um, Think about also, there's other times when, uh, like Abram, Abram, God reveals himself to Abram whenever Abram's in a secluded place in the middle of nowhere. It's it's also at night, so that happens a lot. In fact, there's three times in the Gospel of Mark where Christ is seen praying. Now, in the Gospel of Luke, you see Christ praying a lot more. It's not to say that there's, like we talked about in catechism class, there's contradictions. There's just different views or lenses of, of Christ's life here. So in the Gospel of Mark, you have three occasions where Christ prays. This is one of them. The other one is after the feeding of 5,000. The other one is uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane before he goes to the cross. And so it's interesting because in every one of those episodes, it's either right after something really astonishing or right before something that's very cataclysmic in in, in in a sense, for the cross, torturous for him. And so it's no accident that here, I would say you actually have a little bit of both because Christ has not encountered any controversy yet. Starting next week, when we see Christ go and he heals another man, his life will begin to see controversy in every direction, from every direction. Uh, But it's also after a nice exciting situation has happened where everybody's coming and he's doing these miracles. So it's kind of right in the between stage. But the point is, is that he's in a secluded place. It's at night. Every, all three of those episodes, it takes place. Christ is praying at night. He's in a secluded place. And that's no accident. Remember when Christ, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. And look at, look at verse 6. Matthew 6, verse 6. Okay, and remember there's another place where the disciples come up to Christ and they say, Lord, teach us to pray. And Christ teaches His disciples to pray. And you might have heard that, you know, there's something about this. The disciples go up to Christ and they don't say, hey, Christ, teach us to preach. Christ, teach us to do that. Christ, te-, They say, Lord, teach us to pray. Why? Because they recognize that Christ is a man of prayer. Which tells us something, right? If Christ is a man of prayer, Christ, the incarnate Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, He takes on flesh. He has already, He's been anointed by the Holy Spirit, but it's not like He's just riding on the wave of that anointing back at the Jordan River. He knows that He has to be in prayer all the time. So how much more do we need to be in prayer, right? And what does Christ say? Look at verse 6. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Okay? Now here's the thing. 
Corporate prayer, that's when a body of believers are praying. We also see that like on the day of Pentecost. When they're waiting for the Holy Spirit to be poured out onto them, they're praying together as a group. Women, men, everybody's there. They're all praying together. But there's also times, and I would say there, this is this is for sure equally, if not even more important than corporate prayer, because I think the corporate prayer, that's that's very important, it's vital. And it's been one of in my, you know, my opinion, it's one of the best the best ministries we have, I think. Um and it's certainly one of the most important. However, here's the thing. If we're not praying individually by ourselves, right, one-on-one with the Lord, it's, you know, it's not to say you can't come to corporate prayer. Of course, you'll come. But it's just to say both are very necessary, right? You can't, you can't really do one well without the other. So we have to be in prayer. We see that Christ here, when he's, when he's talking about prayer, he's saying it should be done in a place that's in secret. Okay, and, when, and then look what he says in verse 7. When you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Now here's the beauty of this right here, because in a sense we have insight into what some of the things Christ would say or think or do whenever He's praying. That's the beauty of this. So this comes directly from Christ, and He says, you want to know how to pray? He says, look at verse 9, pray then in this way. But remember, he just told us, not in meaningless, repetitious words, right? So if you ever uh, see, not to name names, but uh, Roman Catholics, um, no, I'm just kidding, we're not naming names here, right? But anyways, you know, it's amazing because I, I encounter Roman Catholics all the time. Um, and like at abortion clinics, you see Roman Catholics all the time. And really, this is not to bash Roman Catholics. It's just to give an illustration of what happens, right? So sometimes when they speak of praying... What do they usually mean? And I'm speaking as someone who, I tell you, interacts with Roman Catholics probably four times a week, regularly, for a lengthy period of time. It usually consists of some type, some type of meaningless, repetitious prayer. When they're saying the same thing over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, right? And so the point for us is to realize it's not just a Roman Catholic thing. It can, we can get caught up doing the same thing, right? Because if we're in a situation and we're like, in other words, this is not just to be said a thousand times and then you get up and you leave the prayer closet, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. And you're like, okay, a thousand times and then boom, you're good for the day. It's not that way. What this is, is this, a, this is a framework. This is a model to teach us some of the order and priority of our prayer. So you're going through here, and, and, and usually it's spoken of as seven petitions. Okay, So he says, pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's the first petition. Hallowed be your name. That God's name is holy. So when you're praying, if you think of, uh, I just read a good book by Luther. He, he has, uh, it's on prayer actually, and he has three different things that he goes through. And he's writing this to just some ordinary man who asks Luther, hey, Luther, how do I pray? I'm having, str- I'm, I'm struggling praying like we all do, right? I'm busy. I got a lot going on. And then I go and I pray. My mind's going a thousand miles an hour. How do I pray? And so Luther has three things that he points to. Number one is this, the Lord's Prayer. Number two is the Ten Commandments. And um, number three is the Apostles' Creed. And when he goes through this, what he's doing is he opens this up. And, it's, that's, and I would say this is exactly what Christ is giving this to us for. As we're in prayer and we're thinking about, okay, notice we're not saying, Lord, I need this. I need that. I don't, you know, this isn't going right. This isn't going well. I'm worried about my kids. I'm worried about this and that. That's not how Christ tells us to start, right? He tells us to start by first and foremost, remembering who God is. Remembering who He is. That's the first thing. God is hallowed. God is holy. God is, is, is being worshipped by angels. God's the one who's made all things. 
And so that's how we begin. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. And then we're thinking, okay, we want God's kingdom to be advanced. We want God's kingdom, not just as it is in heaven. Look what he says. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So not just in heaven, but on earth. We want God's kingdom to come. We want God's will to be done. God, is it, is it your will that, you know, I don't know, you know, cancer. We, we talked about somebody who had cancer and um, different various physical ailments. They come up, right? And we're saying, wait a minute. God, heal me of these things. Right? Heal me of these things if it's your will. Remember Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's about to go to the cross and drink the cup of God's wrath on behalf of those who come to Him in faith so that they themselves will never have to taste God's wrath. And He's in the Garden and He says, let this cup pass from me. He's talking about the cup of God's wrath crushing Him on the cross in place of His people. And so if ever there's a time to say, Lord, you've got to get me out of this. It was that time. But at the very end of that, he says, Lord, not my will be done, but your will be done. So whether it's with work, whether it's with family, whatever it is, you know, a lot of times if you're in a tough spot in your marriage, you know, and you're like, Lord, I remember, you know, and not just one time, but several times people say, you know, I feel like it's the Lord's will that um, I divorce my spouse or, you know, have an an affair over here with it. I felt like that's the Lord's will because I love the person. They love me back. I know it's not my wife. I... You know that's not the Lord's will, right? So when we're praying, it's not, Lord, you know, get me out of this marriage. Thy will be done. Well, God's will is not to get you out of that marriage. So, you know, so deal with that, right? So in other words, we're reframing our understanding and our own mindset when it comes to what we're praying for. Before we even get to the prayer, before we even get to getting around to our stuff, what the Lord's doing here, what Christ is teaching us to do is that when we pray, Prayer is not about changing God so much as it is about changing us to be more in, in, in compliance with God's own will. Because once we start remembering who He is, and once we remember that this is much bigger than our personal happiness, this is much bigger than our personal scenarios, and in fact, even the things in our life that are difficult and toilsome and, and, and you know beyond difficult, you're talking about some of the hardest things that we can go through in life. We know that God is a good God, is using all these things for the glory of His own name, and for our own good, for those who love God. And so as we're praying these things, we're being reoriented. Our brains are being re, rewired in a sense in the, in the process of praying. That's the order here. So our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then he says, give us this day our daily bread. Because we do need daily things. We do need bread. We do need, whether you take this spiritually, give us this day our daily bread. Spiritual bread or physical bread, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Remember how many parables are about that where Christ is like, hey, you want to go and pray to the Lord, but you have, you have people you haven't forgiven in your heart yet. Well, how can you expect God to forgive you, right? When we, we whatever the person does to us can never, can never be as nearly offensive as how we have offended God. And yet God has forgiven us. So who are we to say, no. I got this grudge, I have this resentment, I have this bitterness. And I know there are times in every, you know, a lot of people have some serious, serious stuff that they have gone through. And I know it's difficult, so I'm not saying, you know, it's just willy-nilly stuff. I know it's difficult. And sometimes it's every single day where you're having to pray and work through this and, and fight with it and struggle with this, these emotions, right? I know that's, I know that's true. 
And so I'm not trying to downplay that. But what I'm saying is that in those moments, this is what that prayer is trying to do, right? This is what the purpose of this prayer is doing. To remind myself, if I want to be forgiven, I also need to forgive my debtors. And he says, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So in other words, going back to Mark, and I wish we, I mean, there's, there's three sermons right there. There's seven sermons, actually. I've actually preached seven sermons on that one, so we can't do that here. But the point is, is that when Christ is in prayer, he's in a secluded place. What is he doing? He's doing exactly what he himself said to do. He's modeling that for us. So he's in prayer. He's in a secluded spot. He's with the Lord. No doubt his mind is on, Lord, let's advance your kingdom on earth. Thank you for this day yesterday and all this stuff. But at the same time, he's not satisfied. He knows that it's just beginning. And so he needs grace. He needs power. He needs strength. And right in the middle of all of this, wouldn't you know it, go back to Mark chapter 1 and look what happens. Okay, Right in the middle of it, verse 36, Simon and his companions searched for him. Alright? It's like, what's he doing, man? Christ is alone with the Lord and you're over here looking for... I mean, guys, like, relax a little. The word here for search is actually hunted in the Greek. Simon and his companions hunted him. And the word is used ten times in Mark, and in every single case it always has a negative connotation. Usually it's used about the Pharisees and Sadducees trying to trip up Jesus. So it's interesting that Mark uses that word here. Same thing in the Old Testament... Um, whenever that word is used in the, in the, it's called the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that word is always with a negative connotation so um, it's almost like what Peter does in 11.18 oh Peter, you know, the uh, very zealous guy, but at times a bit reckless as uh, we can, or at least I can relate with Peter um, but look at verse 18 um, actually no, that's for, the, that's for the other thing, look at 8, chapter 8 verse 29 and 30. So this is Peter. It's a very similar situation in a sense. So chapter 8, verse 29, okay? Christ continued by questioning them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him and said to him, you're the Christ. You're the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. And the reason I bring that up is because this is similar to what the disciples are going to accuse Christ subtly of doing back here in Mark chapter 1. When they go to Christ, when they hunt Christ, look what happens in verse 37. They found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. Everyone is looking for you. That, in my mind, is a touch of reproach. They're saying, what are you, what are you doing here? Everybody's looking for you. You know, you just had this incredible night the night before. Everybody's looking for you. You've got to get back over here. You've got to come do what you did yesterday because they're all looking for you, right? And look at this. So, so it's, it's, it's almost like they're saying you have to capitalize on the success. What are you doing over here in seclusion? Everybody needs you. They want you. They're hunting you. We're hunting you. Everybody's hunting you. Look at his response. Verse 38. He said to them, let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby. Let us go somewhere else. Now again, from the, from the world's perspective, you're looking at this from the flesh's perspective. Imagine you're Peter. And imagine you're, 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 you're James and you're John and you're Andrew and you hear Christ and you know all these people. You know, I mean, think about how disgruntled you would be, confused. 
If you're like, hey, Jesus, you got thousands of people at the door at Peter's house. They're waiting for you. Come and see what they need. And Christ is like, no, I'm going to go somewhere else. Now, you know from their perspective, because I would argue that's our perspective a lot of times, right? You're going to be like Christ. <laughs> are you out of your mind? Where are we going to go that's better than this right here? Where, what, what village are we going to find that's better than the situation? It's teed up for you. It's right there. It's, it's, it's for you to just go walk right in. It's, it's, I mean, you don't have to do any work anymore. It's right there. Just walk over there. But what's going on here? Now, there's a few things, right? The, uh, again, the disciples don't quite understand what Jesus is up to. They don't get it, right? And, and you see this. See, if you think of... Let's turn to John chapter 6. This is not the first time. This is going to happen over and over and over again. John chapter 6. Because what Christ is understanding is, first of all, the people are not there for Him. The people are there because of what He does for them. The people are there because He gives things to them. How many times, and this is the in, in the American culture for sure, right? The Christian culture in America. How many times do you hear gospel presentations that center around you and what God can do for you? Right? Now, can God do things for you? Yes, absolutely. He And He does through Jesus Christ. But the problem is, is when people are assuming that the reason I'm becoming a Christian is because God can heal so-and-so. Or because God can, you know, make my life easier, more successful. He can give me this job. You know, in jail, I think I mentioned it here when I, uh, Zachary and I even, we, we, you know, doing a lot of jail ministry. And a lot of times you hear about these jailhouse conversions. They get out, they go right back to the world. When they're in jail, man, they're convicted. They're upset. They have the Word of God. I've seen Bibles in those jails, man. They are, these guys probably have the whole thing memorized. And I'm not saying that they're not converted. A lot of guys do get converted in there. But usually what happens is is when they go in, that's a bad spot to be in in life. And they have remorse, not necessarily in the eyes of God or for their sins, like David says, against thee and thee alone have I sinned. But it's more like, God, I'm seeing the judge next month. I don't want to go to prison. And that's how all of us can be, if you think about it. Right? We can all kind of go into that trap. Like, hey, if I'm in a, if I'm in a pinch, I really got to get my spiritual act together because I need something. Now, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but I'm saying that that's not the motive to go to Christ. Would Christ be worth going to even if you knew that you would get nothing from it? Would He be worth going to if you knew that when you go to Him, He's not going to let you into heaven? Now, we know He does. This is hypothetical. We know that Christ does Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, they're saved. But let's say that wasn't the case. I'm arguing, I would say that, yes, He would still be worth going to. He would still be worth praising. He would still be worth worshiping. Right? And so this is, this is the thing that Christ is aware of. They're not there for me. The disciples don't know that. They're just, they're just stoked. You know, they're like, man, that was so cool. Let's go see it again. But Christ is like, no, I know what's in man. You see that in John, it says, John chapter 1. I know what's in the heart of man. And I know what they're after, and it's not me. And so look at chapter 6, verse 26. Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on Him the Father God has set His seal. Therefore they said to Him, What shall we do so that we may see the work? 
uh, the works of God. Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. And then He starts talking. This whole passage is about bread that comes from, from, from heaven and things like that. But the point here is this. There's a confusion here. Christ did not come to fill people's bellies. He did not come to make you have a healthy life for 80 years and then you die in your sin and go to hell. Christ does heal people. We talked about that last week. Christ does heal people. People in my family, people in your family have probably seen the the hand of God on their lives and, and their healing effect. But here's the thing. If God heals somebody, a lot of these people, they get healed, but who's to say they're in heaven? Right? And so if we come to Christ thinking, hey, I'm coming to Christ because He's going to make my life better, because He's going to heal my arm, of you know, of whatever it is, then in reality, we're not coming to the Christ of the Bible. We're coming to a Christ that we made up in our own imagination. And that is what Christ is warning against. So there's, there, that, that's one thing that's going on whenever He says, let's go somewhere else. Number one, these people do not have the right understanding of what I, what I have come to do. Number two, though, The gospel can't be confined to just one area. That's the main thing. You think about this. I mean, here's the thing. When we think about a church plant, we can't think, hey, we're just going to get in our own little conclave, our own little sphere, and we're just going to, you know, we're going to come together on Sundays or whatever, every day of the week, you know, whatever. And it's just going to be us in our own bubble, on our own island. We can't. See, Christ's mission and Christ's thinking is always outward, right? Christ is like, hey, we got to go... The, the purpose of this is to go and reach others. Now, we know the purpose of worship is to worship God. But in part, think about Christ's own life. Why did Christ, when He comes to earth, why does He not just make a beeline to the cross, go to the cross, die on the cross, and then go back to heaven? Why the three years in between of ministry? Why the three years when He's going around and He's teaching and He's doing these signs and wonders? Yes. But he's teaching people. He's going from village to village. He's preaching. He's teaching. He's making disciples. Why does he go through the persecution and the controversy and people scheming against him and one of his own disciples is going to betray him? Why does he do that? Think about it. Why does he go through all of that? Why does he do that? He's doing that because the purpose of all of this... See, there's more than just, it's more than just being converted. For you and I, it's more than just justification, in other words. Christ, when He goes to the cross, He secures our justification by dying in our place on the cross. You, whenever you're born again, by the power of God through the new birth, you're born again, you turn from your sins, you turn to the Christ that you had never turned to before, now you're following Christ, right? But there's, there's a reason why you don't die right away after you're converted. The reason you're alive is the same reason Christ is going through these villages so that He can proclaim the good news to others, so that He can be an influence on other people, not just in their conversion, but on those who have already been converted. Now you can go and disciple them. Now you can teach them. You can help them, right? We should all have people that we're discipling because whatever stage of growth you're at, there are going to be people who are not where you are. And so you can go to those people and disciple them. That's part of what it is, right? And then they'll have their own people that they're discipling. So there's this, there's this thing that's taking place that's outward. It's not just coming together, being isolated from the world and all of that. It's so that we can take the world. So that's the thing. We, we need to, when we say, you know, John Knox used to pray, God, give me Scotland or I die. He says, Lord, don't just give me Edinburgh. Don't just give me Glasgow. He said, I want the whole country. 
If you think about that here, right? So in other words, think about Clovis in this sense, right? Think about this church in this sense. It's not just, Lord, we have 50 people, now we're good, right? No, it's like, Lord, there's 40,000 people in Clovis that have not bent the knee to Christ, right? We don't, you know, and I'm just throwing a number out there. I know there's 40,000 people in Clovis. I know there's a lot of people who are converted, but it's like, Lord, this town is, is not, has not been taken for Christ yet. And Christ owns it. So part of our mission is to go out wherever you work, to the people you're around, your friends, your family, your neighborhoods, everybody you meet far and wide as God opens the door and gives you opportunity. Share Christ. Preach Christ. That's what he says. Look what he says here. Verse 38. He said to them, Let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. That's what I came for. If you think, you know, and here's the thing, right? So um, actually I'm going to save this for the end. If, if you think about what's going on here, when he says, this is what I came for, you know what he's talking about? There's the, 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 the language here is very similar to what you would find when Christ, when someone speaks of Christ in the sense of uh, uh, the incarnation, when he takes on flesh. Like, what's the purpose of Christ coming to earth? And we're like, well, it's to go to the cross. And that's absolutely the case, right? One of the purposes of Christ's mission when he comes to earth was to go and die. But there was more to it than that. He says, I also came to preach because faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. It's not faith comes by seeing miracles and seeing miracles done by God. It's faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. Whenever Paul talks about people's conversions, when he writes these letters to the Thessalonians and the Ephesians and all these people, in almost every single letter he talks in there about how you heard the gospel and you received it with faith. He's talking about hearing. He's not saying you saw us do miracles. Now, he's not opposed to that, but he's saying that's not what converts people. And Christ realizes this is much bigger than just one little group. So in other words, think in terms of, look, 50 people, yes, but we want more people. And then we need to go plant other churches. And then we need to send missionaries. And then we need, you know what I mean? We, in other words, we can't be satisfied, right? And Christ is saying the same thing. It doesn't stop in Galilee. And it's not going to stop in Jerusalem. See, these disciples don't even have a clue that he's not talking, He's not just going after Galilee here. He's not just going after Nazareth. And he's not just going after Jerusalem. He's going after the ends of the earth. He's going, he's, he's, he wants to go to America and take America. He wants to go to Clovis 2,000 years from now and take Clovis for the gospel. The disciples, they're thinking, you know, on, on different terms. And so Christ is... Christ, you know, at this point, he's not quite correcting them yet, but he's saying, no, we're, we're going to another place. Uh, and so verse 39, and he went into their synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out demons. And the last part here on the demons, you know, so he is preaching and casting out demons. And as, as we saw last week, the purpose of this, partly, is to demonstrate, as we spoke last week, Adam fails in the garden to protect the garden, to guard the garden against demonic infiltration. The Israelites, they go into Canaan, they fail to protect Canaan and to purge Canaan from all of the demonic infiltration. Christ comes to earth and whenever he's going around casting out demons, that is him declaring that this realm, that these demons are now in, it belongs to me. Individually, it belongs to me. The demons that you were, you, you know, the, that you were enslaved to before you came to Christ, enslaved to sin, you see in Ephesians 2, where you are, by God's... Uh, power we're delivered from this but you know we were enslaved in our minds and in our flesh to do what the world does to to like what the world likes to go after what the world goes after to see through the lenses of the world 
But then God in His mercy comes and delivers us. And when He does that, that is God proclaiming to everyone far and wide that this is mine. And that's what He's doing when He goes. And He says, eventually, go to all the world and and make disciples of all the nations. Why? Because all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to Me. So He's... When he's casting out these demons, this is a this is a uh, this this is an establishment of his dominion on earth. Remember, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So this is in the process. So we're in the process of seeing this take place. So that's what's going on. So let me close with this. All right. So there's there's a lot here, but um, Acts chapter fourteen. Number one, I want to give two points of application, not three. Sorry, Eric. But chapter... Alright, there's two points here. Okay, Number one. Success cannot always be gauged by eyes or enthusiasm. We have to know that. We all know that, right? Just because there's enthusiasm in a person... Remember the parable of the soils that we'll get to? You see this a lot. I remember being like a teenager, and I I don't think I'll ever forget it, but I was at a church. It was actually in town, and I won't name names. Um... I think it was Faith Christian. No, it was. I'm just kidding. No, it was. This is years ago, though. It might be different now. I don't know. But I was in the, uh, I was at the uh, the youth thing or whatever it was. You know, they had like the big drawn out altar call at the end, and everybody's going up there. They're bawling their eyes out. They're, ex- you know, these are my friends. They're going up there, and I'm not saying that's bad. You know, if, if the Lord convicts you, by all means, that it might look that way, and it has looked that way in the past for some people. But, you know, you see all this enthusiasm and emotion. And I, you know, the next day is crazy because these saying, and I thought about this, I was lost. But I thought about it because I thought, well, this is really odd. Because last night, you know, we were all there and you were like doing these, these you know, like, I, you know, like Christ is the best thing. And, you know, he's your boyfriend and all that. Like they talk over there. And then I'm wondering, though, the next day we're doing the exact same thing. There's no change. And it was enthusiasm. That's it. Now, I'm not saying that's a mark just of that church. Believe me, right? That can be any of us. Christ tells us there are different kinds of enthusiasm. Not all enthusiasm is bad. God has made us to be emotional people. God has wired us to have emotion. We express ourselves through emotion. We express ourselves in different ways, right? So that's not the bad part. But what Christ says is this. Christ warns us through these parables. He says there's good soil and there's bad soil. And there can be good soil that that tries to show uh, it looks like they're saved. They have enthusiasm. But when trials and persecution come, they fall away. When riches and the cares of the world come, the deceitfulness of riches, all these things, they fall away. They had the enthusiasm. They had the energy. They had the excitement. They saw so-and-so just got healed. So they come back to the door the next morning. But at the end, where are they? Do they follow Christ through it all? Remember what this book was about. It was written, or who it was written to. It was written to people suffering martyrdom in Rome. They were being persecuted. They were being, they were, they were, they were being thrown to beasts, and wolves. So we see these things happen. But the point is, is it, you know, in other words, just be cautious, right? But confident. Hopefully. Cautious. Does that make sense? Optimistically circumspective. You know, where we're saying, hey, it's good that we're excited. It's good. But first of all, we can't be satisfied with this. Secondly, time will tell. The Puritans, you know how in our culture it's always, it's usually a lot of times it's about, hey, what day, what hour were you converted? And you're supposed to, a lot of times, you know, it's it's like there's this idea that you need to know exactly when that moment of conversion is. And, you know, the reality is this. So the Puritans, I like what the Puritans would say. They say, look, I don't 
cared when that hour was. I, what I want to know is, are you evidencing that salvation in your life right now? Are you bearing fruit right now? Right? Because if you say, Hi, I was saved 10 years ago. This and that. Altar call, whatever. But then nothing's changed in me. It's not, it's not quite a conversion. It's not a conversion at all. Right? You're known by your fruit. And so that's what the Puritans would say. So in other words, it's not always something to be seen by the eyes. Now, um, well, let me illustrate this by the thing I was going to share with you. It's, 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 it's the ultimate turn of events here in the Bible. Acts 14. You can turn if you want to. I'll read it if not. Acts 14, verse 8. Case. Paul and Barnabas, they go to this place called Lystra. They go, they heal this guy. I'll summarize most of it. And then when they heal this guy, everybody starts. They're excited. They're saying the gods have become like men and have come down to us because Paul and Barnabas just healed this guy. So they, they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And then the priest of Zeus come and they're sacrificing animals and they're worshiping Paul and Barnabas. And Paul and Barnabas are tearing their robes and they're like, they say, guys, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. So they're so excited by this guy getting healed that they're worshiping Paul and Barnabas. They're sacrificing oxen to Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas, they're, you know, they're tearing their robe, pulling their hair out, saying, what are you doing? And then look at this. Look at this. They keep preaching, but then Verse 19, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and having won over the crowds, the same crowds that are worshiping these guys, the Jews went over these crowds and then they stoned Paul. (laughs) Is that crazy or what? They go from worshiping Paul to stoning Paul in, in one afternoon. I mean, this is crazy, right? But this just goes to show you can't trust that stuff. You can't trust that stuff, right? And so, I don't know. Number two, though, all right, the work... As Christians, the life of a Christian is both external and internal. It's not just, hey, I'm going to go spend my life in a monastery and pray to God all day. But at the same time, it's not, hey, I'm never, I'm never going to pray. I'm not going to church. I'm never going to spend time with the saints. I'm going to spend all my time evangelizing and, and, and preaching and all that stuff. It's, it's not either or. It's both and. So the life of a Christian is both internal in the sense of it consists of... of, of uh, disciplines, reading the Word, praying, fasting, all these things, being with the saints, being strengthened, all these things, right? But it also includes when we go out, when we're not with the saints, when we're not praying, when we're not reading the Word, that we are soldiers for Christ, we're ambassadors for Christ, we're part of the church militant, we're taking Christ We're taking Clovis for Christ. We're taking the workplace for Christ. Everywhere we go, we're being salt and light. That's what Christ would say. We're sharing Christ. We're showing Christ. All these different things, right? So it's both and. It's not either or. And we see that demonstrated most excellently in the life of Christ. He wasn't a man of just action. And he wasn't a man who was a monk. He was a man who did both. He prayed and he worked. He prayed and he preached. Okay, so that's what we see here. So next week we'll see the controversy that begins to happen in Christ's life. Um, so let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for his life. We thank you that it was not a life that was uh, short in a sense. We know 33 years is short, but we also know that the three years that he spent ministering the word, we know, Lord, that it's, it's filled with, with so much fruit and so much Uh, so much example for us to learn from and to glean from. And Father, we pray that you would give us grace 
to be people who are faithful to your word, that you would help us to evaluate things truthfully and in the right way and in the right context. Lord, give us grace to to have the proper emotion. Lord, we know that you have made us emotional beings, Lord, so give us grace to have emotion that's directed in the right way. We pray that you would give all of us grace to to cling to Christ in the midst of all of our trials and in the way that He did so, through prayer. Lord, help us to be people of prayer in our lives. Father, it's so hard to take time away from whatever we have going on, to spend time with You, to spend time in Your Word. Lord, give us that. We pray that You would help us to be people that, like Christ, we go away and we get alone with You, and we pray that in those moments You would come and commune with us and that You would strengthen us and empower us And we also pray that you would help us to be people who do the works of God while it is day. We know that night comes when no man can work. So give us grace now, Lord, to to be about your business with both hands to the plow. We thank you for this day. Lord, bless the families here. Bless the individuals here. Have your hand upon each one of us. Lord, we, we do pray that you would take this town for you, that you would claim it for your name, for your glory's sake, not so that we can have a big church. Not so that, Lord, forget all that. We want you to be glorified and you to be honored. So, Lord, we pray that you would use us, weak, fallible, imperfect vessels. Lord, help us in this community wherever we are this week. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's stand up and we'll sing.